This is a Brain Bites episode. Each week, we share two things we learned the past week and how you can implement them in your life. So, let's get into it. And welcome to episode seven of Brain Bites, a little bit of retrospection. Kieran, how are you doing, my friend? Doing well, mate. Um, look, got the jab, finally. And I say the jab, that could, that's very open to interpretation. Got the vaccine. <laughs> Easy. Easy. <laughs> got, got the vaccine on Saturday. Um, all all repaired, all nice. Um, so I'm, oh, I'm ready to go, mate. Ready to go. How are you? I'm, I'm doing pretty well. I haven't got the jab yet, but it has opened up in Melbourne where I'm at. So I'm deliberating whether I get the AstraZeneca. But speaking of uh, other news, I was wondering, what what's tickled your brain this last week? So much has tickled my brain, mate, to be honest with you. But there was one thing in particular. Now, I don't know if you've done this before, but I went through the rabbit, down the rabbit hole the other week and basically literally looked at old Facebook photos and photos. And despite seeing like my Goku-like haircut and some really weird stuff that went on, I muttered the phrase, those were the good old days. And it was like, I remember, mm. I was like, this so viscerally. And I was like, but wait a second, were they actually the good old days? Or am I just literally just saying that for the sake of saying it? And it led me down, again, another proverbial rabbit hole to realize that this was a case of rosy retrospection, which is a bias that represents our tendency to fondly recall past memories relative to the present. And it basically says in the end that we have a pretty inaccurate evaluation of these time periods, but we still have it, which was interesting. Oh, that is a nostalgia in a nutshell. You remember the family holidays, but you don't remember all the arguments at the airport. Um, no, you don't. About hitting hitting me deep. You don't, right? Because you recall and you, you recall the good things. I, what are some examples of Rosé retrospection? So I've never actually heard about this before. I'm, I'm quite curious as how this bias plays out. Yeah. So I'll, I, you know what? I'm gonna, I'll give you a few examples because I think it is, and then I'll illustrate okay. how it actually happens because I think that might work well. So another – okay, I'm not political. Put out my hands, but they're two political examples. Brexit. Right. So looking at Brexit right. in 2016, when they did some surveys, basically 50% of British adults who are over 50 reported that life in the past was preferable to life today. And if you take that as an example of it and you link it with that rosy retrospection of that England's independence, it links so nicely with Donald Trump's slogan of make America great again. The 40s and 50s, where America wasn't pushed around, they were this great nation. But to your point, we forgot that this period of time from America's history, it was rife with inequality and so much injustice, but that narrative spoke. So those would be two examples, if that makes sense. It does. And I can even remember even talking to your parents, right? They have this similar thing where they think about the old times as better. And like, you didn't have the internet, which is magic. Absolutely. And like, that's where the, the, the mechanism of this, I think, is really, I found absolutely fascinating because emotionally more salient rem- rem- memories, known as the reminiscence bump, they're where the long term memories are found between 10 to 30. They're the more significant life memories that you go through. You get married, you go through all the, the drinking years, and so to speak, maybe you don't remember those, but there's greater levels of hormones and neurotransmitters like dopamine that are critical, as you know, in episodic formation. And so, what became interesting when I was reflecting upon it is, It's a reliance on how we felt at the time, not the exact events. And so there's other research that showed that negative autobiographical memories are more complex as well, and they decay over time quicker relative to, like, sorry, slower, uh, sorry, quicker relative to positive ones, which again came to to be. So yeah, rosy retrospection, hey? 
Rosy retrospection. We remember the good times, the old times with these rose tinted glasses. Are you going to use this in, in any way? I'm, I'm trying to think, you know, brain tools. How do we make it practical? Yeah, from a practical lens, the we always talk about sort of conscious journaling, so to speak. But I think yeah. when we're looking back, when we're going through adverse experiences, acknowledging and like looking back, I wish I was back there. Just acknowledge the things that were true and list the things that were actually tangibly better. And when you actually start this process of actually listing, you realize very quickly that, yeah, there was good and bad in both times. And so I think that is probably the big thing moving forward, especially when I feel sad or I loathe the present. Um, you know, another thing to do is to actually search, and this is what I now do, search the worst atrocities from 100 years ago. Um, and I put that in. I know it sounds really bloody grim and I'm going to put that out there, but it gives me perspective to realize, hey, yeah. yeah, I might be going through something built poor now, but imagine if I was born 100 years earlier going through that sort of stuff. I think I prefer now. Yeah, it's almost as if you're tipping the scales a little bit. So rather than just purely having this this positive lens in your retrospective view, you're actually weighing the stuff that happened on the other side, the negative stuff. Although I've never looked at atrocities from the past before. Yeah, I probably just come across as the weirdest human being alive for that, which means I'm going to move very, very, very quickly because I know you, my friend, would have been trawling the web or listening to many audio things. What did you find for your brain this week? So this week I was listening to a podcast from cognitive neuroscientist Jared Cooney Horvath. Shout him out. He's fantastic. Talking about attention and the best way to get attention, which I thought was really interesting because I know a lot of people are in the marketing world or producing content or just in the work they do. We're all vying for attention in some way. 100%. 100%. And it's that, that we've told like the greatest commodity at the moment is not just time, it's your attention, right? People fighting right. for your attention yeah. and trying to get it. And I haven't found myself like today at work, just literally zoning out and going down a rabbit hole where I was reading all these articles as well. For you, like how, I'm trying to think how this works in the brain because I assume there's some links with obviously memory and executive function, but yeah, how does it work? There is. So, Jared was, Dr. Cooney Horvath was talking about this idea that at every stage throughout the day, we're living in this prediction mode or for maybe about 90% of our days where you're, you're actually living two to three seconds in advance of what's happening. Your brain's predicting what comes next. And so the best way to get someone's attention based on that is to actually break the prediction, break the expectations. And what that does is that brings them back in the moment and brings them back to this state of active coding, writing, encoding new information versus that passive prediction process. So it's really about breaking expectations uh, and how this would work if you're thinking about it from the brain. You've kind of got this passive prediction mode, which our brain is in for, like I said, about 90% of the time to conserve energy, where it's really kind of predicting what's happening, going to happen next based on your learnings, your experiences, your memories, everything you've developed over your life. And then you've also got this active coding state, which is when you're learning and when neuroplasticity happens, but that takes a lot of energy to do. So using this principle of kind of breaking the prediction, what you're doing is breaking the prediction of what is to come next, just like that pause was right there. You are so happy with yourself right now. I'm seeing, I see you smile on your face, but it's a perfect like example of it. Oh, and it's reminding me of like movies, 
right? Like thriller yeah, movies and scary movies. Exactly. It's like you get you yep. get lulled, right? You see this is predictable what's going on, and then bam, something comes at you. You're like, what on earth is going on? This is crazy. But it totally breaks the prediction of what your brain thinks is going to happen versus what actually does happen. Absolutely. And it's that element of surprise and that prediction breaking, which forces you to, to wake up and pay attention because biologically your brain enters this state of saying, hey, this is not what I expected. Uh, and as a result, you need to pay attention because this might be really important for your survival. And this may sound all well and good in theory, but if you're like me, you're probably wondering, okay, well, how do I actually apply that? And a couple of ways to do this. Whatever you're doing, whether that's writing an email to someone, maybe you're doing cold emails or putting together a document or sending a text, a voice message, or maybe you're recording a video or a podcast, who knows? What you need to do is write down A, what do people expect? What, what is their prediction machine making in their head for that experience? And then to get their attention, break that by doing something completely different. So for example, if there's a lot of noise, if it's a really loud setting and you go quiet or silent, like I did just before, that breaks the prediction. If you're sending a cold email, if you're reaching out to people and the prediction is people get these big, long emails and you send one that's one sentence, that's going to break the prediction of people and gather attention. Whatever you're doing, it's just trying to break that prediction of what is expected to gain attention of the person on the other side. That makes a lot of sense. The question I'm asking myself here, like if I'm going to implement it is like, what is this person expecting? And that first base, like create mm. that baseline and then either go high or low as a result of it. And I love that example of um, no need to sh- like, you know, like the idea of not shouting loud, you know, when people are like really yeah. rowdy and stuff. This is like teacher one-on-one. I remember like being in year two and the teacher, instead of shouting, would always do a clap, the whole duh, 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 duh. And you would literally be there and you would do it because you weren't expecting it. And then you, after not expecting it, then they would routinize it. And then you'd literally be like operant conditioning or like Pavlov Pavlov's conditioning as well. So teachers, teachers clearly got us. What kind of, what kind of kindergartens were you in, man? My, my teacher did not operant condition me. <laughs> oh, sorry. I'm just laughing um, at that. But oh, mate, that, that makes so much sense. So, you know, break Uh, the prediction that your brain is making. Be mindful of that active and passive coding. And as you said, if you can do something that's different, it'll create that novelty gap, which grabs people's attention. And those are two of the brain bites for the week. Rosie retrospection and surprising one's audience. And that's kind of what we've got covered for this week. We've definitely got more content uh, on the way. And our next full brain tools episode, which will be on... I don't know. No, I'm getting confidence, confidence, confidence. Uh, thank you so much for listening to Brain Bites, and we'll uh, see you on the next episode. Bye.